My brothers and sisters in Christ, good morning. Thank you. Uh, I normally attend the, the uh, 9.30 service. I may not be very well known to, to you. My name is Jay Spencer. For those of you that don't know me, you're probably wondering just who is Jay Spencer. Those of you that do know me are probably thinking, who does Jay Spencer think he is? <laughs> Eric, back here. <laughs> Well, I'll answer, I'll answer those questions as best I can. I am a retired reservoir engineer. I joined a Baptist church as a young boy. Joined a Methodist church while I was in college. And for me, college, I crammed a seven-year education. I crammed four years into seven years. So it's not very specific when I say I joined a Methodist church in college. That's a wide time band there. I've been a member of this church for about six years. I'm a Stephen leader in this church, heavily involved in the Stephen ministry. I'm, uh, I've also been your representative at the Methodist Charge Conference in Corpus Christi, the annual charge conference, uh, along with other people here, uh, for the last three years. And having said all that, I'm probably best known as the brother of Susie Bullington, excuse me, and the husband of Stacy Spencer. Such is life. My mother is also a member here. And so uh, at the end of the today, if you think I had some words that moved you in some way, I am open to compliments. I like that. <laughs> Come find me. If you don't, don't write one of those pissy little emails to Laura complaining about what happened today. Instead, come find me. I'll find my mother. And you can go talk to her and ask her where she went wrong raising me. Okay? Deal? Now, today we're going to continue the talk on the apostles, that series uh, that we started, that band of ordinary men who uh, were changed by God and then changed the world. We're going to talk about Philip today. He's one of the lesser-known apostles. How many of you know something about Philip? Raise your hand. You're afraid I'll call you up here to make you do the service, aren't you? And you're right, I would. I'd do it. It didn't go well in the first service, let me just tell you that. (laughs) Now, before I get too started on this, uh, there are two Philips mentioned in the New Testament. The Philip we're going to talk about today is the Apostle Philip, and the only scripture we have about him is in the book of of John. while he is mentioned in the, the first three synoptic gospels as the fifth apostle, there's no direct scripture there. Only in John do we have direct scripture. The other Philip <coughs> that's in the uh, Bible is in Acts, and it's a Philip that went on to become one of the first seven deacons of our church. Not the same, same people are often confused, but not the same, same person. Now, as I was preparing for this uh, talk, seems like forever ago. It was so far in the past that I accepted this that it wasn't even real to me. Today it's real, I want to tell you. But reading about Philip and reading what theologians have written about him made me think about faith. I think he's a great example about faith, both in the positive and in the negative. So I looked the word faith up in my Bible dictionary that my mother would be so proud I'm using because she gave it to me. Uh, And as you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, not in Old English, uh, but it was written in Greek. And the word that has been translated 
to be faith in English, the Greek word is P-I-S-T-I-S. Pistis? I'm not not Greek. I don't know how to say it, but uh, that's the word. What was interesting to me in its verb form, it can be more directly translated into two phrases. One is, I believe, and one is, I trust. Well, that that took me then to C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It's a short book, very thought-provoking, very powerful. If you've not read it, I suggest you invest some time in it. But in his book, he devotes two chapters to faith. And again, it's those same two concepts, that, that one, that acceptance of, of Jesus is our path to salvation, and that second, that growing, that deepening faith that we must be on, that, that faith is a journey that it must continue to deepen and grow. Um, so with that, 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 let's open our Bibles. If any of you have your Bible with you, John chapter 1, verses 43 to 45. This, to me, is about that first moment, that acceptance moment, that I believe moment that Philip has. Now, as you're turning to it, I've got to tell you, John's my favorite book in the Bible. Some of you, you know, all of us have different favorite books, but they, he's my favorite because, as I mentioned, I'm an engineer, and when I read John, it seems to say to me, you know, the authors seem to say, I've already given you three books on the life of Christ, and you just don't get it. It's too subtle for you. So I'm going to be a bit more blunt. As an engineer, I like blunt. I mean, as subtle as I can get is a 10-pound sledgehammer. That's as subtle as I can be. So I love John. Now, this, this scripture, I'm going to set it up. Christ has already enlisted the brothers Andrew and Simon Peter, and he's continuing to pick that band of ordinary men that are going to change the world. Here we are. Next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, this is the story of Philip's first encounter with with Jesus. It reminds me of those those faith moments when we first encountered Jesus in our life. We felt that awesome power of Christ moving us. But I want to look a little deeper into this verse. Philip speaks of Jesus as being the Messiah as foretold or uh, by Moses in the law and the prophets. This suggests to me he was a student of the Hebrew Testament, the Old Testament. He is very aware of God's promise to send the Messiah. So when he meets Jesus, he has already, he's already accepted that God will send the one. So he's aware of that. But let's think a little bit about that time. This time the Jews, the Israelites, were being oppressed by the Romans. And while there's no mention in the Hebrew Testament that the Messiah would be a military leader, that's what the Jews, the Israelites of that day wanted. They wanted someone that could lead them out from under that oppression. So, you know how when you want something, you think about it, suddenly it kind of becomes the law. That's what they were expecting in the Messiah. So Philip had to be very aware of that. But yet, the man he encounters is not a warrior. He's not armed. He's very different from what he expected. 
But yet, after only two words, follow me, he accepts Christ as his master. This speaks to me the incredible power that Jesus had when he was on the face of this earth. And I'd like right now for us all to think about those times, those moments when we have been moved inside by the power of God. Maybe it was at an Emmaus event. For you, maybe that's where it was. Maybe you remember a time when you were praying with someone dear to you that was going through crisis and you felt the power of God. Maybe it was at the birth of a new member into your family, that miracle of birth. Or for some of you, maybe you remember that, that moment when you accepted Jesus Christ into your life and your thoughts about God were no longer logic-driven. This is what I think Philip was feeling at that moment. And it speaks to me of the power of Christ. Now, I'm going to take you back a minute to C.S. Lewis's book. He has that second chapter on faith. That chapter that after we've had conversion, our faith must continue to grow. How we must learn to turn to God, to trust God, to listen to God, and know that he will be there, know that he will answer us. This next chapter, this next scripture, we're going to see that Philip's is struggling with this part of his faith. With that, turn to John chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. This scripture is about the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle. That miracle appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, but nowhere else is Philip involved in the scripture. Before I read it, I also want you to remember that at this time, in, in the book of John alone, Philip has witnessed... Jesus turning water into the finest wine. Philip has witnessed Jesus healing the man at the well at Bethesda. And we also read in the last chapter of John, chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse in John, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have enough room for the books that were written. So I think it's very safe to say, at this point, Philip had witnessed many miracles. With that, let me read the, uh, John chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. When he looked up, he saw a large crowd coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Christ was clearly testing Philip. Philip the accountant, Philip the bean counter, Philip the engineer, he starts doing the math of why it can't possibly happen. In his book, The Thirteen Disciple, Apostles, Ellis Kalis suggests that Philip the believer, Philip the trusting, Philip the apostle, might have, should have, could have answered this question with something like, Jesus, for you, everything is possible. 
But instead, Philip's the accountant. And I don't mean to, to offend you accountants out there. Philip the engineer. Philip the imperfect. He starts listing the issues of why we cannot possibly feed the 5,000. The scripture I picked because it's me. I see myself responding just like Philip. For most of my life, had God given me, had Jesus given me this test and more time, I could have come up with a much longer list of why we couldn't do it. I could have probably come up with a timeline of what it would take to get there. I could have come up with a cost of borrowed capital. I could have come up with a, you know, a critical path analysis. I mean, just, you can just see the engineer in me cranking out all the reasons we can't do this. So I, like Philip, would be calculating rather than trusting. How do we change this? How do we, we move forward? Because I suspect many of you have this same obstacle in your life. Many of you have the same stumbling block that prevents you from being a better Christian, prevents you from being a better disciple for Christ. How do we change? Well, I've got to tell you, my own life, in the past six years, I've learned more about faith than I did in the previous 57 years of my life, thanks to you. I have seen incredible acts of faith in this church. I've heard Robert and LaRue Woods tell the story of Helping Hands, how they would get at critical junctures in the life of Helping Hands and would pray. And the answers and the blessings they received are powerful witnesses to the power of God and to the power of faith. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a Stephen leader, heavily involved in our Stephen ministry program. When we bring somebody in, a, a, a potential care receiver, we first have to discern, can Stephen ministry help them? Then if we, we do discern that we can help them, we've got to make that perfect match between them and a care receiver. Or maybe we find ourselves pondering about the next group of Stephen ministers we're going to train. Will that class make? Will they be called by God? I fret and I worry over it. And invariably, one of the other Stephen leaders, Gene Walker, Mildred Schaefer, will say, well, let's pray about it. We always get an answer. And for me, what's more powerful than that is often the answer we receive through prayer is not the one my little engineering mind would have come up. So, let me just close this down and tell you a couple of relevant, review a couple of relevant points here. Is first, that first step of faith, that acceptance like we saw Philip have, that's what's brought us here. That's what's made us a member of this church. If you've not accepted Christ and his path to salvation, uh, I suggest you visit with Laura in this next week. But, but that's why we're here. But that's not enough. We've got to keep moving. Faith is a journey. It's a growth. So the challenge I see for us as groups, as a church, as individuals, is, is not to respond like Philip and come up with all the reasons we cannot. Now, make no mistake, when somebody brings in an idea to admin council, that we don't just blast down that road. We still have to be stewards of God's resources. 
we still have to look for mistakes. We still have to look for places uh, uh, of pitfalls that could befall us. But what I am suggesting is that we develop that deeper faith that C.S. Lewis speaks of. That we turn to God in prayer, trusting that not only will he make his will known to us, but he will give us a path to accomplish it. After all, our motto, our creed here at Bee Creek is not all that different from those 12 ordinary men that were changed by God and then changed the world. This is our mission statement. Let's read it together. We believe we are called to be a community where imperfect people experience the perfect love of God, are transformed, and change the world together. Let's go to prayer to our, with our Lord. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for you coming into our lives. We have felt and witnessed your spirit and power. Today, we ask you to open our hearts and minds to that further growth in faith. Help us to trust in you completely. Help us to learn how to discern your will. Teach us how to be still and listen. We ask these things in your name. Amen.